listening to Perfume on the Radio. On Lookout. Welcome to Perfume on the Radio. This is a bi-monthly program presented by the Institute for Art and Olfaction. If you don't know about us, we're a nonprofit organization devoted to experimentation and access in the field of perfumery, and we're based here in beautiful Chinatown in lovely Los Angeles where the people are happy and the smells are plentiful. Today's episode is guest hosted by Heather Savar. Heather is an independent perfumer and smell enthusiast, and she recently started her brand Savaria. Savaria is a collection of accords that you can mix and match to make different scents, so you can personalize the perfumes. Heather joined us for an episode exploring some biological aspects of smelling. This episode covers the impact a smelly t-shirt can have on human desire, how bees use smell for harmony and communication in their busy hives, and how dogs can be trained to find human remains. It's a particularly fascinating episode, and we are super excited to welcome Heather on this 10th episode of Perfume on the Radio, Biologically Speaking. Here is Heather. My name is Heather Savar, and I will be your guest host today. I guess the best way to describe myself is uh, just, uh, I guess I'm a scent nerd. Not just because I like perfume, but I just want to know what everything smells like. And it's kind of a problem when I'm trying to make it into a career. I have always been fascinated with smells. I would probably refer to myself as a scent nerd. I often find myself catching up with somebody who lives far away and just asking, what does it smell like there? Full disclosure, I am not a scientist. I do not have a degree in this. I am just fascinated with it and read a lot of information about it. There's a lot of really profound research and developments in the world of olfactionary science. One of my favorite classic scent experiments was that of Claus Vindekin, a Swiss biological researcher notable for his 1995 study that determined that major histocompatibility complex often referred to as just MHC, would determine a mate preference in humans. The study is often known as the sweaty t-shirt study. In it, men wore the same t-shirt for two days, and then the shirts were put in these identical boxes, and then they had a group of women who were asked to smell the shirts and to indicate which shirts they would be most sexually attracted to. (laughs) How does one do that? I don't know. But the results showed that the women preferred the odors of men with dissimilar MHCs to their own. However, the preference was reversed if they had been taking oral contraceptives. <laughs> no. The hypothesis is that MHC plays a role in the selection of potential mates via olfaction. So MHC genes make molecules that enable the immune system to recognize invaders. Generally, the more diverse the MHC genes of the parents, the stronger the immune system is of the offspring. It would obviously be beneficial, therefore, to have a system of recognizing individuals with different MHC genes and preferably selecting them to breed. Which brings me to smell dating. I stumbled upon Tiga Brain While I was researching one of my own projects, Tiga is this amazing artist, originally from Australia, who teamed up with a partner to create something called smell dating. She basically took one of my favorite experiments and turned it into a dating site. We talked to her now from her apartment in New York via Zoom about how all of that came about. Smell dating, it was a collaboration between myself and Sam Levine. And at the time, I was doing a lot of work around data visualization, around the way that we perceive information from the world more generally, and then how that gets conveyed or, or used in different ways. And um was really fascinated by the way that smell doesn't really get captured in digital media. Um, you know, there isn't really a way to create a smell interface on the internet, for example. And 
you know, all dating services that sort of were existent online at the time were really like centered around the profile picture and visual information and the curation of the visual as ways of choosing partners. And so we really started to think and got talking about what would it look like to try to create a uh, online service where you could meet people based on a totally different way of perceiving them. Um, So we started chatting to smell scientists and researchers around how what role smell played in attraction, how research was done around that question and came up with this idea for us. So a yes, yes and a yes maybe meant that you were matched in an email and introduced to each other and then folks went on dates from there. And did you have any success stories? Yeah, we did actually. Um, I mean, my relationship came out of smell dating. I matched with my partner on smell dating and we're still together. So I think actually... Of the New York group, we are the wow. sort of longest running couple. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people went on dates. Um, I did, we didn't collect a ton of data about our participants because we were also, you know, trying to create a sort of dating service that doesn't rely on, you know, tracking and, and lots of data collection. But I do know of two other couples who dated for a number of months in the New York group. Um, we also ran it the year after in China. Um, for another cohort of 100. And I actually got an email a few months ago from one of our Chinese couples who said that they'd got married and they asked me to record like a little blessing for their wedding. So we had our first like smell wedding. Wow. Yeah. So I guess they've been dating now for a few years and yeah. Wow. And then so um, how many runs of the um, smell dating did you do? Was it just a one time? We, we only did it one time in New York and then we did it one time in Shanghai. I mean, we, we're open to doing it again. It is obviously. Oh, I think you absolutely should, especially. It's quite an elaborate thing to, uh, to pull off. We also ended up realizing the work is sort of a installation um, consisting of smells in a space when you can go and smell different body odors and sort of try to guess or project what you think the person um, is like who owns that odor and so yeah there are sort of a di- few different versions of the the project and I really like that you don't play into um, the visual of somebody of course but also that there is no knowing what gender somebody is or where they're from or anything really it's just their smell and you don't you don't really see that on a, a dating site yeah I think that was a very interesting thing for us was this question of like, first of all, like what can you tell from somebody's smell? You know, we smell people all day long. You catch the subway, you know, you are encountering body odour. And um, I think this is a, you know, this is an ongoing question in science as well is, you know, we, we know very little about smell. Yeah, you know, absolutely. maybe there's a lot more sort of, ambiguity or possibilities out there than we we'd want to admit to ourselves so yeah maybe your nose knows more than you think yes exactly exactly yeah. I mean and one one interesting thing that was going on at the time we were doing this project was also that there was this sort of realization that uh, these services were collecting a lot of data and that this data was being used to automate you know decisions and the way these services operated in ways that weren't always what we what were desirable or um, that could be very problematic. For example, like it was there was a story that broke at the time around how OKCupid's okay, algorithms for matching you, you are more likely to be matched with people of the same race as you mm. and um, folks of different racial backgrounds, um, which is obviously like highly problematic, uh, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> And so, you know, I think the the collection and, and use of data in these services is really opaque. Like a lot of the times, you know, the folks building them aren't even totally sure why certain patterns are emerging. So, yeah, so that was also happening in the background too of like what role do we want these technologies to play? Like do we want to be relying on them to sort of match us with potential partners? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, the way that you're combining um, getting people back in touch with their sense of smell and moving away from all of those other distractions. Yeah. You know, obviously our culture centers visual information and oral information 
much more than sort of the molecular or the smell smell based perception. And you know this this is long running, right? Smell is associated with being more animal like or a sort of more intuitive or kind of like less controlled way of perceiving. But I think, you know, that was also interesting for us because it felt like there was a sort of truth in there and that it's much harder to sort of cultivate a smell to be desired than it is to say, like, Photoshop your profile picture. As part of the research for the project, um, as I mentioned, we did talk to a lot of smell researchers. Um, And we talked to a group who was doing pheromone research in Sweden and they were... I mean, this is the way that pheromone research in science happens. Like they were actually doing T-shirt studies where where folks were given T-shirts, asked to wear them, and then the T-shirts analysed for the, the scent. Of course, they were doing it in a way that was much more controlled in that their participants, you know, were advised not to smoke and not to eat onion and garlic and all of these sort of more fragrant foods. But for us, you know, I think, we were really interested in somebody's like full lifestyle smell profile. And so if you were a smoker, like hopefully that comes through in your, in your sample and like that is valuable information for, an, for somebody who, you know, might, might be smelling um, your, in your smell group, for example. Yeah. And they, I mean, they may have also been using that other element of the um, MHC I guess it is. It's like the the way you keep track of the like biological profile of somebody's um, immunity or genetics. Yeah, there is some um, work that also uh, theorizes that, you know, perhaps we are more attracted to people's smells who have very different immune systems to ourselves and that that might be a factor in attraction and encouraging you to sort of procreate with folks who you know have a different like kind of genetic profile to yourself uh how much that sort of work has been um confirmed in science is something that I actually can't comment on but I think it's an interesting idea right this this question of like does it have a sort of evolutionary role and what would that be you know I think the other interesting thing is that we often talk about smell our sense of smell as being subjective participating in smell dating really showed me that I think that's a misconception in that like I smelled the the you know group of samples that I got sent and took notes on them all on my responses and then the next day I did exactly the same thing just to see if I get, you know, had the same responses. Um, and I had exactly the same, like, um, responses the second time I did it. So actually it's very hard to describe a smell really accurately in English and, and so that's where the subjectivity comes in. I feel like there's also a real element of, like, memory and familiarity that plays in there. Yeah, in that, absolutely. you know, again, we we know what our friends smell like. We just don't really pay attention to that sort of way of knowing. Um, and it's masked by so many things too. It's masked by so many things. It's also like hard to describe, right? It's sort of a, a mode of perception that is outside of language. I mean, the other really interesting thing that w- we found in the results looking at like how many matches were made and and so forth in our smell dating project was I was really curious like if there was anyone who was like universally good or bad smelling and so we did we were able to look at you know how many who was the person who got the most yes votes was there someone who got the most no votes and I think off the top of my head our our best performing smell participant got six out of nine yes votes yes I want to meet this person Funnily enough, he is a friend and we only told him years later because we didn't want his, like, ego to explode. (laughs) And then there were a couple of folks who got, I think, around five or six no votes and they were the sort of um, worst performing participants. But nobody is universally good or bad smelling, which I thought was very hopeful and wonderful that, like, you smell good to someone out there. And that was Tiga Brain. You can learn more about her at tigabrain.com.
My next guest is Kat Warren, a wonderful, funny, humble person. She's also the New York Times bestselling author of What the Dog Knows, Scent, Science, and the Amazing Way Dogs Perceive the World. Kat worked as a newspaper journalist for many years and now writes and teaches at North Carolina State University. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for being with me for the show. Can you start by telling me a little bit about your history and how you got into cadaver dog work? The way I entered into it was one one of those things where the thing that made you most miserable ended up making you the happiest. Um, so it was a, an odd bit of serendipity that David and I got a German Shepherd puppy who was a singleton. So he was the only pup in his litter. And he was, I was so looking forward to this pup because I was going to, I was going to have him in obedience rings and I was going to do all these social things with him. And he came into our lives as a little puppy sociopath. (laughs) So when you have, when you have pups that don't have litter mates, they actually never learn what's really crucial sort of dog language. Pups in a litter learn these thousands of signals with each other, like when it hurts because they're biting too hard and how to back off and how, you know, how to interact with the dog world. And um, Solo arrived having none of that. Essentially, he was a dog aggressive puppy. (laughs) And I, I would take him to a puppy obedience class and I, I'd have to leave halfway through. I mean, I changed vets several times. Ultimately, he was a really super smart dog and puppy and really attached to people, which actually isn't unusual for singletons, but singletons can also become people aggressive Happily, that wasn't the case with Solo. He loved us. He loved socializing with other people. But I realized that I couldn't walk him in the neighborhood. I couldn't take him the places that I imagined taking a pup like this. And so when he was about four and a half months old, I took him to this trainer I had known in the past who was just a super down-to-earth trainer. And she basically said, why don't you consider training him as a cadaver dog? I had no idea prior to that what a cadaver dog was. Nancy Hook, this trainer explained, you know, it's a dog who goes out and searches for those who are missing and probably dead. We kind of talked through it and I found myself fascinated with the concept partly because I am a former newspaper reporter and I covered crimes in courts and all of that. And partly just the science and biology of scent detection fascinated me. Yeah. So tell me more about um, how you go about training um, a cadaver dog when it comes to scent, because I know the dogs already have a really acute sense of smell. Um, But what is that process like? There are so many ways that you can train a good scent detection dog. But the basic thing that you're doing with a dog is rewarding them when they indicate to you that they found the particular scent you're training them on. So if it's cocaine, you're going to reward the dog every time it touches its nose to a container that contains cocaine, as opposed to something else like dog kibble or dog saliva or nothing at all. And it's simply through this process of teaching a dog, that's the scent you're going to get rewarded for finding, that over time, the dog gets more and more sophisticated. The challenge with something like human remains is that if you think about the spectrum of what you might be looking for in a disaster, a collapsed building, tornado, hurricane, a bomb, that dog is going out and finding a scent that is, to put it nicely, very fresh. And, you know, talking about this a little, a scent that might go back thousands of years, Dogs that are properly trained are capable of finding human remains that are that ancient. So when you're training the dog, you're also saying to yourself, what is it I'm going to use this dog for? Because if you're using a dog in a forensic context, 
i.e. that the dog is going to be part of a court procedure, then you may be training the dog on something like blood because a dog being able to say, I smell blood here and I'm going to tell you about it can be critical to a criminal or court case. But in the case of a disaster, if you have a human remains detection dog, you actually don't want to train them on blood because on the scene of a disaster, there may be a lot of blood, but you're not looking for that. You're actually looking for the remains of a human. And that sounds a it, little basic. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it, it actually gets me thinking about just, I don't know if you can really get into it, but how you are training for that. It sounds like you're you're finding a way to get them to smell the different stages of decomposition. That That's exactly right. And if you talk to people who do this at a super professional level, who are getting called out because they're successful at this, those people are making sure that their dogs are exposed to the very thing that they're going to be finding. And that means that if it's somebody who's missing, the dog needs exposure to a fair amount of scent. And it can be difficult because depending on the state that you live in or the kinds of teams you have or what cooperative associations you have with hospitals that may be willing to help donate for training purposes, certain amounts of material, the dog is going to be most effective if it is able to train on what it's going to find. Now, that said, we also know that dogs can be successful even when they've been trained on something called pseudoscent, which is literally chemical corporations' efforts to sort of trap the scent of human death in chemicals and use those chemicals to train the dog. Human decomposition is so complex, right, that we have so many different volatile compounds coming off a a body or a part of a body or a bone, chemists are still trying to narrow down what those chemicals are. And so when you think about things like pseudoscent, you think it's surprising that that could even work, but it can. I mean, the ideal is, of course, that you have good, legal, careful access to the range of what the dog's going to find when it is actually called out on a search. But the reality is, is that sometimes dogs can be surprisingly good at generalizing, that they are exposed to tissue of some kind, and yet they go out and are able to find somebody's body out in the woods or skeletal remains. And you go, that dog didn't actually get exposed to that particular thing, but there's enough of an overlap that the dog says, hey, I think this might be something you'd be interested in. Um, I love when you talk about all of the different animals that people have tried to use as taking a similar job in place of a dog, like having a, what was it, like a, a vulture? The German, the German vulture experiment, which was such a failure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, vultures have an amazing sense of smell. And I actually looked at a really early study where um, in Texas, they were trying to figure out where there were pipeline leaks, right, for for um, transportation, oil, right? So oil pipelines and where there were leaks. And they were actually able to put essentially a kind of cadavering compound in the pipes and watch the vultures because vultures are amazing. And their only problem as sort of cadaver vultures is that they have no attachment to humans um, and they're not interested in collaborating with humans. And so the whole idea of just let a vulture go find it is super great in principle, but they just- They're like, I just want to find anything dead. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, a squirrel, I'm good with that, right? Yeah. So do you think that that's what, that's what makes a dog so unique in that way is, it, is its relationship to humans? It is. Grizzly bears have like an amazing sense of smell, but 
they haven't evolved with us in ways that it makes us very comfortable using them uh, as part of a team to find a human body, right? They even found that pigs um, in experiments, and we know through pigs that find truffles, that pigs could find buried landmines at a deeper depth than a dog could. But again, part of the problem is, is that pigs want to root, so it's dangerous, that you have an exploded pig. And again, a dog hits all the right notes, right? We like to work with them. They like to work with us. They're not nocturnal or diurnal, right? They're happy to be awake and ready to go when we are. And they're kind of the, the right size. And then alongside that is that when they're properly trained and you have a good relationship with them, um, they want to work with you. Because it's fun to work with people. Yeah, they. I guess they've had they've had uh, centuries of the reward system. I mean, it's thousands of years, and it's so interesting to sort of look about how much we're learning about how early that relationship happened between people and dogs, and the timeline keeps getting pushed back. Used to be that we were thinking 14,000 years, and now we're in the 30 and 40,000 year range. And I think that may even change. Yeah, what a cool evolution of partnership there, especially with what dogs are doing right now as far as detecting um, disease. I am so thrilled watching some of the research that's coming out and some of the. I think the training that's getting better and better where a dog that's carefully trained can, for instance, help detect diabetic lows and highs in its person. A dog's nose is actually even more accurate than a test. And a dog can alert its owner more quickly to the fact that they need to either get insulin or do whatever is needed. We're still learning about things like epilepsy um, and what it is that makes a dog able to detect an oncoming seizure when they're properly trained, but they can do it. And COVID, Miami Heat used COVID detection dogs for a game like last month of people coming in for the game, the detection dogs would essentially alert to positive COVID. I mean, dogs are so good at these things because they really are relying on their sense of smell so much. Um, Do you think that it's possible that humans can maybe not get to that level, but maybe get in touch with that a little bit more? Because, you know, like there's the woman who says that she can smell Parkinson's on people um, and she lost her husband to Parkinson's disease. Like, do you think that it could be a matter of training or getting back in touch with your sense of smell for humans to kind of meet dogs on that level? You know, I, I think that it's a kind of marvelous thing when you start to pay attention to your own sense of smell and the degree to which We know, for instance, that doctors in the 19th and 18th and 17th century were partly diagnosing various diseases based on their scent, right? And I think everybody's sort of uncomfortable these days, sort of like, no, let's run some tests, but uh, or the idea of a doctor sniffing a patient. But the fact is, is that diabetes had a, a certain odor, cancer has a certain odor. And there was actually, you know, there's sort of, a, you can look at these 19th century lists that are essentially asking a doctor to use not only their eyes and their ears, but their sense of smell to think about what might be going on with a patient. That's a wonderful thing. And I also think that we're learning more about it. We are paying attention to it. And I think that Western society has been very sort of bad at paying attention to it, right? I think that that there are societies where it's much more important. And there have been times when if you go out, you can sort of sniff the air and know things. I know that in one case with a woman who was missing in New Hampshire, she was missing for months and 
depending on what time of a day it was, people in various spots, like really like more than a mile away could smell something, right? Wow, yeah. And only ex post facto did everybody put it together. But, you know, scent travels and humans have noses. Yeah, I feel like um, maybe we've treated the sense of smell as something that's just kind of um, like a the cherry on top or something, or just like not the most important sense and just like, oh, it's nice to smell flowers or it's nice to wear this perfume, but not necessarily paying attention to all of the things it provides for your safety. Yeah. Uh, for your Sni- connection. Sniff- sniffing the chicken that has oh, sat right. in the fridge for a few too many days, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're really good at sniffing milk to see if it's turned. I mean, these are skills that at one point were essential for our survival, that we not um, eat bacteria-ridden things that were going to kill us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like that. I think we talked about this before the, the college student test. That's so famous. Yes. And I think um, this was uh, Berkeley scientists and it was then sort of the early 2000s. My recollection of that study was that they took, of course, a bunch of undergraduates who had blindfolds on and they had little pads for their knees and for their hands. And they were put on an essence of chocolate trail. So what was fascinating about this was that the undergraduates were quite good at following this chocolate trail using just their noses. And I think the second insight about this was that they got better at it, that they were able to track the chocolate faster in subsequent tests. And then I think that the third thing, and I think you and I talked a little bit about this, but the two nostrils make a difference. One nostril is not as effective as you try to correct on a trail. Um, Students that were able to had access to both their nostrils were able to stick more closely to the track. And this makes a lot of sense. We know that dogs do this, that they, yeah. they smell in stereo. That's right. I, it actually reminds me of part of your book where you were talking about certain indicators in a dog's, forgive me if I'm wrong, of hair growth that showed you <laughs> if they were left brain or right brain. <laughs> I'm not sure entirely whether this squirrel stuff would stand the light of a large study. But what's interesting about it is that Temple Grandin did do a study of the whorls on cattle's faces and found that a particular direction of whorl correlated with a mellower steer, if that makes sense. So somebody in um, Australia did a study of dog squirrels. Um, and so the study really had was this thing about whether a particular kind of whorl correlated with um, a really promising search and rescue dog. Oh my gosh. It's like a whole new world of like palm reading or something. It, it, yes, there's, there is a little bit of that in it. So you wrote an article in the New York Times about some new discoveries about archaeologists and dogs. Tell me more about that. Yes, and this is something that fascinates me, partly because of this issue of how old can human remains be and a dog actually still being able to indicate on them. What's interesting is that the timeline keeps getting pushed back a little bit. I was fortunate enough with Solo, I was able to work at a sort of revolutionary war era graveyard. And what was fascinating to me was that Solo, who didn't train on remains that were several hundred years old, nonetheless indicated and showed interest in the very same spots that dogs who were trained to do this had indicated. So what we're learning is that human remains hang around for a very, very long time. And this is an older graveyard. So some of the newer methods of preserving bodies make it more difficult. And some of the newer kinds of ways we bury people, 
right, in coffins that tend to be much more airtight. But with these much older graveyards where people were either just sort of wrapped in canvas or in plain wooden coffins that fell apart, the vault or organic compounds that come off a body and come into the air can really keep pumping out scent for now we know um, thousands of years. What I wrote about in the New York Times piece was uh, about some handlers in Croatia who worked with an archaeologist to help figure out with a controlled study whether dogs could help find what were essentially Iron Age burials. And these were burials where the archaeologist, Vedrana Glavas, she knew that these Iron Age burials, which were on the top of a really rocky ridge mountain, had already been carbon dated to um, 2,700 years ago. And she knew that there were other burial chests on this rocky ridge. And so she teamed up with um, Andrea Pintar uh, and Andrea's husband, who have very well-trained cadaver dogs that they use for finding mass burials from all the conflicts from World War II through the conflicts in the Balkans. And these dogs are essentially trained to work very slowly and to work with scent that's much older. The result was fascinating because they did a double-blind study The archaeologists didn't know where the burial chests were, and certainly the handlers did not know. Once again, it's the question of what is it that the dogs are detecting? What are the volatiles, and what are the volatiles sort of preserved in? Are they in the bone fragments, or is it possible that the little bit of dirt that's up there holds on to the remains where a body oozes out, And part of the fat or whatever that's in a body goes into the cracks in the stone. And then it just hangs out there and kind of comes up gently. um, And the dogs are able to catch that scent. It was really moving, actually. It was really touching to talk to both the dog handlers and the archaeologists about, you know, what it is, because it's still really rigorous training, right? There's no doubt that Andrea Pintar is just an amazing trainer and she brooks no magic woo-woo about what the dogs are doing. They are impeccably trained, but it also gives you that sense of wonder. And she said, and I remember that, she said, you know, the, the hair on my arm just went up when I realized what the dog was doing. She didn't think the dogs could do this. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that is a thing that that still gives. Um, well, I mean, I probably a lot of our senses, but with the sense of smell, it almost arrives at this place of uh, intuition because it's so hard to explain, and because there are so many things that we don't know. And you know, I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, yeah. Do I think this is magic? No. Do I think dogs are magic? No. Um, Do I think that dogs' noses do things that we still don't know? Absolutely. Do I think that it really would be good if we could know more scientifically about what's going on and what they're detecting so that, for instance, we could come up with super materials to train them on? I think that would be really good. Because Ultimately, it's something that's really hard. So when you have dogs that are super well-trained with good handlers, with a good relationship, and they're doing this, it's so beautiful. But the opposite thing can happen. And I, you know, I wrote about this, is where, where there's dishonesty or you overestimate what the dog's capable of. And so a dog alerts on something and you dig for three days and there's absolutely nothing there. Yeah. What is that called again? It's called a false alert. So the issue is if a dog thinks that it smells something and it gives you that indication by lying down on that spot, for instance, and yet the decision is made to dig there and nothing is found, then the the question is, 
was there something there? Is there something just uphill of that? You don't know. Should you insist that your dog is never wrong? No, that's really stupid because, because a well-trained dog tries to be really honest and says, you know, this, this smells a lot like what you give me my reward for. And so that's where the really sort of interesting stuff comes in. And especially if you think with victims who are buried somewhere and it's been a few years and dogs can be super useful in helping locate that person. But it's also true that that smell is very faint and that you need more than a dog's nose to help with that task. This is where, you know, ground penetrating radar and soil testing and sort of good investigation and all of those things kind of come together in nice triangulation where the dog's nose is kind of additive, but not, this is the only thing we've got to go on. Yes, that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's the case with people too, right? I mean, this is, this is the idea of it, takes a team to do really hard stuff. When I think about what happens in cases where a dog's nose is super helpful, it's always nice to be humble and remember um, everybody around that dog and around that handler who helped create that outcome. But they, yeah, they are doing such amazing work that um, seems to still be out of the hands of human beings. I think, yes. So an old dry bone, you pick it up, you sniff it. It's like, how, how can a dog figure that out? We don't think that there are what we call volatile organic compounds coming off that bone in any really significant amount. And yet there's something there. There's something there that a dog can really recognize. My um, wonderful dentist loaned me the uh, jawbone of an anatomical skeleton that he had in his office because he and I talked a lot about this. And he said, why don't you take this jaw? None of my, none of my dental technicians need it right now. They've been trained. Take it and see what Solo does. And Mm -hmm. it was great because it was my first exposure at that time to human bone. And so he lent it to me for a couple of weeks and Solo would go out and go, huh. And he would have to get fairly close to it. But then, you know, his head would flip and he'd go, hmm. And I'd go, that's it. That's the thing I want you to find. And so pretty soon Solo was finding older human remains, the thing that made me think really in a kind of speculative way was that I had a paleontologist come into my graduate class, which is a science writing for the media class. And she came in, her name is Mary Schweitzer. She's at NC State and she was very involved with early research that showed that she had found essentially collagen, soft tissue in a T-Rex bone. And it turned the world of paleontology upside down because it's sort of like, no, these are all fossilized. There's nothing in there. And she's going, no, no, actually I see, I see cells. I see red blood cells. I see these things, but she came into the class and after the class, she and I were talking, I was talking about my work with cadaver dogs. And, and I said, um, so Mary, do dinosaur bones ever smell? <laughs> and we were laughing. She said, oh my God, I've been on digs where they are so smelly. I what does that imagine mean what to that you? Right? Like. You, don't, you would not in a million, this is like not talked about. There's something sort of um, untoward about thinking about smelly dinosaur bones. I don't know why, but it's sort of like, ooh, old dinosaur meat. But that's really what we're talking about. And so the idea then of dogs being able to find human remains that are 2,700 years old no longer seems like such a stretch given smelly dinosaur bones. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I just, I really want to know what that smells like. Yeah, I bet it smells like, I bet it, well, remember, 
Yeah. She didn't want to talk about it. She was like, oh, well, think about what um, uh, really bad old rotten chicken smells like. So we know that dinosaurs are, that birds basically, right? Dinosaurs were birds. They were very early versions of birds. So I could imagine that dinosaur meat, and we know that alligator tastes like chicken, right? That's what people say. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Tastes like chicken. So if, I think that you could start to make the um, argument that it probably smells like really raw chicken. Are there any cases that you can share where the cadaver dog made a difference in the outcome? I think this case that was absolutely fascinating. It became a scientific study. This husband and wife were on a yacht and the wife disappeared. And the husband said that she had just fallen overboard. She must have fallen overboard. Well, law enforcement didn't believe that. And dogs were brought in and the dogs alerted on the mattress in the yacht. And that was the only evidence that they were ever ever able to find. But the prosecutor was really interested in the entire issue, right, of why the dogs had alerted and that they had found no blood or anything else on that mattress. And a forensic anthropologist did the experiment of, and I think maybe only in Germany, but it was a really beautiful experiment that two sort of freshly deceased people who had donated their bodies to science were brought into a open courtyard in this German city. And they were put on a table that had carpet squares on top. The person was wrapped in a sheet and they were exposed for only five minutes and 10 minutes to these carpet squares. So there's no blood, no skin cells, no nothing. It's just this really gentle five minute with a sheet between the body and the carpet. And the dogs that were involved, there were four Malinois or three Malinois, they alerted correctly on the positive carpet square. 90% of the time, two of the dogs alerted correctly 100% of the time. So they would, you know, the carpet square would get lined up, the positive carpet square that had been exposed only for five minutes to a very freshly deceased person, and then carpet squares that had nothing on them. And that the dogs were able to do that, to me, is the same, creates the same kind of wonder that I have when I think about dogs being able to find remains that are 2,700 years old. This is such indirect scent of death that you would think there would be nothing. And yet the dogs were really good at this. Wow. And so that opened up the case, the boat case. I couldn't find out. I worked so hard, Heather. I sent so many emails to find out um, whether there was an outcome, right? Because very often, if there's no body, there's no case. So I do not know what the outcome of that was, despite some of my efforts. But there have been other cases. You remember the wood the wood chipper case that became Fargo, the very grim movie oh, about the right. yes about the wife who was fed through a wood chipper and mm-hmm. that came from a really grim case in Connecticut and it became Fargo which was this dark comedy but the case in Connecticut was just heartbreaking it was an airline pilot and this was his wife who was a flight attendant and he essentially fed her through a wood chipper one night during a snowstorm there were piles and piles of wood chips and they brought in Andy Redman, who by then had a little bit of a reputation because he was the first person who trained cadaver dogs in the United States. And his dog lady alerted to a fingernail and another fragment in those piles of wood chips and the fingernail and the bit of tissue, but the fingernail polish matched the fingernail polish in the cupboard in her bathroom cabinet. And that was a case where there was just these fragments and they were able to essentially make a case against the husband who oh is who's still in prison. 
Yes. Wow, that's pretty crazy. I, I, yeah, I did know that Fargo was based on a true story, but I had no idea that it was a cadaver dog that actually found them. Wow. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where you say, well, it's a cadaver dog, but it's also true that Henry Lee was the uh, the forensics expert in that case, and he was amazing. And the fact that the husband had paid for a large freezer on his credit card and also paid for a wood chipper on his credit card. So there was other sort of circumstantial evidence that helped with this. But it is true that having those few fragments was was incredibly important to the case. Fascinating. And um, I just wanted to thank you again so much for talking to me and making the time to talk to me. And just all of the work that you've done is so important. I know you're very humble about those things, but it's really incredible everything that you've you've worked on. Well, it was really so. it was really fun talking about it. And in a way, when I talk about it, it makes me go back and do more research, and I always learn something new. And so that's also the sort of the fun part of this is that um, remembering that the science and all of this is pretty new and that we're learning more. And, and I think that's just kind of wonderful. That was Kat Warren joining me from Durham, North Carolina. You can learn more about her at catwarren.com. Josh Mark Van harvests some of the best honey in Los Angeles. He's also a complete well of knowledge when it comes to bees. Oftentimes he works even without a bee suit, which tells you how symbiotic his relationship is with those bees. I talked to him specifically about how bees use their keen sense of smell to function and how sometimes beekeepers kind of use that to their advantage. Hi, Josh Markman. Thanks for being with us today. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do exactly? I know you're a beekeeper, but give me some more details. Sure. So I remove bee colonies from urban places, usually buildings, um, in situations where the bees are a nuisance to people or a hazard and the bees need to be removed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remove uh, bee colonies intact. I keep all the bees alive and I take the bee colonies to one of several bee yards, uh, also called apiary sites, where there are clusters of beehives. I uh, set the bees up in kind of uh, permanent dwellings and just let them kind of do their bee thing and um, harvest some honey from the bees. But uh, my bees keep most of the honey that they make. Bees are extremely smell oriented. And the most important smells that a bee colony uses are the smells that are uh, generated by their queen. The pheromones or the smells actually have encoded instructions, uh, which is amazing to think about that the pheromones actually kind of transmit us signals to uh, aspects of their behavior, to organization of the hive itself, defense levels. For instance, if a beekeeper encounters a bee colony that's unusually defensive, that beekeeper removes that colony's queen replaces it with a queen of known genetic origin. Uh, So a queen that was born of nice or gentle bees. And when the bees have adjusted to the new queen, they take on her atmosphere. And a bee colony wants to kind of carry forth their genetic framework. They're not really buddies with the next bee colony's genetic setup. So um, they don't mix. But if you take a bunch of honeybees from one colony with its queen and you remove those bees from their bee colony and you let their queen's pheromones kind of dissipate, if you wait a while, 
you can then just combine those bees with a different bee colony because they don't have any pheromone signal anymore. And they've kind of, you know, forgotten the pheromones that they've been living under because all the pheromones have blown away in the breeze. Then you can blend those bees with a different bee colony and they'll just be accepted completely peacefully. There's another pheromone that bees use called the Nasanoff pheromone. It's made in two glands on either side of a worker bee's stinger. And it's the pheromone that bees give off swarming bees. So a swarm is technically a baby bee colony that, you know, departs from the original colony when that colony is either congested in the cavity that they live in, or they become so prosperous that it becomes time for them to split into two and spread through the environment in that way. So the Nasanoff pheromone, it smells a lot like lemongrass oil. Really? Uh, so when, you've been able to smell that? Yeah. They are excreting that pheromone. You can smell it with your naked uh, human nose. When the bees have decided upon a new site and enough bees have gone there and kind of checked it out and gave it the thumbs up, bees go to the entrance of that cavity stick their butts in the air kind of on a 45 degree angle and they beat their wings kind of in a narrow pattern that pushes wind or moving air across their Nasanoff glands and they spread this lemony scented smell and so beekeepers use lemongrass oil to mimic that pheromone to mimic that smell and to make wayward bee colonies, swarms that haven't found a home yet, think that this is where they, this is where the colony has accepted. This is used in trapping bees, right? Tell me more about bee traps. The bees are free to go, but it gives them a perfect cavity to use as a home site. And so what I do is bait those traps with bee pheromone. I bait the traps with lemongrass oil, and with a um, uh, tincture that I make from queen bees that have died. Okay, yes. I remember seeing this when I was with you. You had a jar of deceased queens. Just a generalized queen pheromone that's very attractive to bees. As a message for the wayward bees, they're flying the swarms all crazy. They're flying everywhere. Smell this smell. It calls the bees home. Because like to a a worker bee, to a female worker bee, the queen is everything. It's the basis of her entire society and everything that is wonderful in the life of the bee. So the smell of any mated queen is very attractive to a swarm. That was Josh Markvan, beekeeper extraordinaire, and this is Heather Savar, your host for the 10th episode of Perfume on the Radio, Biologically Speaking. Thank you for joining me, and I'll return for another visit down the line. Well, friends, that was episode 10, Biologically Speaking, hosted by the wonderful Heather Savar. Heather just launched a line of perfumes called Savaria, that's C-V-A-R-I-A. Be sure to check it out. Perfume on the Radio is produced by the Institute for Art and Olfaction, which is a nonprofit organization based in Los Angeles that is dedicated to accessibility and experimentation in the field of perfume and also olfactory art and other expressions with scent. You can learn more about us at artandolfaction.com. This episode, like all others, will be archived on perfumeontheradio.com. Before I sign off for the day, I wanted to share our next episode, which explores the ins and outs of naturals. Our guests are Mandy Aftel from Aftelier Perfumes, Simon Constantine, co-founder of Lush's Gorilla Perfumes and more recently founder of And Perfume, and some special guests from the Perfume Lovers Writing Club. We'll see you in a couple weeks.
And until then, friends, keep it kind, keep it real, and keep it smelly. Listening to perfume on the radio. On lookout.